welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com Series 3, Dinhianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography Episode 10, Tochbach Aidhna Part 2, The Reborn Identity A Prophecy the afternoon sunshine silvered the water, diamond points lighting the waves with laughter. The girls all stood in happy chattering groups, finished with their bathing, wrapping themselves in their flower-coloured mantles as they dried their wind-washed hair. Then one of them, perhaps the most beautiful, so it was said, looked up, suddenly still, peering seaward into the grasslands of the estuary. She watched as the silhouetted horseman came closer, took on detail and colour. He was a fine man to see, beautiful. Now she could make out the colour of the noble horse that carried him, high-stepping, the curling mane spray-tossed. Yes, indeed, a fine man, yellow hair bright as butter, fell in silken waves to his shoulder, bound with a golden band. His green mantle hung all shimmering folds over his crimson tunic, and the great brooch pinned at his neck was of good gold, in shape like a leaping fish. Oh, yes, he was a fine man, and finely armed as well. A shield of silver, sun-rimmed in gold, was slung at his back, and in his hand he held a five-pronged gold-banded spear. Now, Aideen had seen so many fine warriors here at her father's court, but not one as noble as this. Not in this world. Not in the mortal world. Aideen realised that she was still staring at this beautiful man and tried to tear her eyes away, but as she turned around to her companions, she saw that they too were transfixed, silent, gazing at the horseman. Yet it was not at them he was looking. Aideen's heart leapt as she understood that it was her, only her, he saluted. Then he spoke. This is Aideen. Here this day at Sheban Find, west of Alva, this is Aideen. Here today among the young ones on the bank of Inver Keithvena. It is she who healed the king's eye with water from the well of Loch Lalique. It is she that was swallowed by Adar's wife, swallowed in a gobleted drink. Because of her, the king shall chase the birds from Tethra and drown his own two horses in the pool of Loch Daevrig. Here you stand, Aideen twice wooed. Full many a war shall be brought to Yochid of Meath because of you. There shall be destruction of hollow hills and battle fought by thousands. But it is she whose tale is sung in this land. It is she who will seek the hand of the king. It is she who is called Bayfind. She is our Aideen forever. The afternoon sunshine silvered the water into diamond points. But Aideen saw none of it. Her mind was dazzled by the words of the otherworldly warrior. She understood none of them, and yet 
And yet, her heart told her that they were truth. And when she finally looked up, the warrior was gone, and the other girls were chattering together and bemused in giggling groups. Aideen shivered. The sun had gone behind clouds and the darkening sea had become grey, bearded in white. They returned home. Well, our last podcast episode lasted for rather a long time. Yeah, about a thousand years. Well, a thousand and twelve, to be precise. Uh, we told the story of Aideen's first life yeah. as the daughter of a relatively minor uh, northern king and how she's wooed and won by the great and famous mither of Breleth. So she was definitely upwardly mobile. Oh, yes. And, of course, we heard about mither's old oh, formidable chief wife, Humnock, who has had it in for this usurper. <laughs> yeah, she turned Aideen into a purple flower. Yes. And then called up a violent storm to drive her away. Yes, yeah, not very uh, sisterly, but yeah, uh, fun <laughs> yeah. And of course, Aideen was had a bit of a respite when she landed in uh, Oingus's Brunaboyna. We made her a crystal bower. Yeah, it? the lovely sun bower. Um, but you know that wasn't to last forever. And again, Fumna got rid of her. Um, Drove her away in a storm. Yes, exactly. So, and that's when she had her long exile over all the peaks and uh, wildernesses of Ireland until exhausted she lands on a beam and falls into somebody's drink a squash yeah <laughs> and suddenly gets much smaller and yes. gets drunk exactly no I don't mean she no. gets drunk <laughs> she bit, is drunk yeah yes. it's a bit bit of a you know sort of a Douglas Adams bit yeah here, yeah really. yeah <laughs> well what just like oh it's all right being drunk or oh, just ask a glass, glass of water, water. yes <laughs> so we better go on with the story yes. yeah we pick up the story a thousand years later and Aideen is now growing up as the daughter of the champion Adar, but she has no memory of her former life. But of course she's still noble <laughs> and she is still apparently the most beautiful girl in Ireland. And she's still called Aideen. Exactly. <laughs> then one day when she's out swimming with her friends. Oh that must have been a warm day. Yeah. Rare enough right. in these parts. They see this really gorgeous young warrior coming towards them. Yes. And there's a wonderful description in the text. Now, this is uh, all in the story that uh, Chris gave us at the beginning there. But really, it's a beautiful piece of writing. It's all that wonderful detail about uh, Mither's clothing and his weaponry and the horse and, really? you know. And the green cloak, which yes. is actually called a fairy cloak, well, isn't it? Although I didn't give it that no, word. No, it's, it's, the term is Sheathelvrat, um, which... The she part sort of may be that it's uh, you know a fairy cloak, but it might also be saying that it's silken or something like that. It's just it's, beautiful. Yeah, exactly. It's all very hyper real. And uh, yes, he has this great brooch that it, it, it seems to stretch from one side to the other, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it seems to be sort of, if you can imagine, almost a brooch on each brooch. shoulder. Yeah, exactly, that, that keeps his, his cloak in place. And then something really remarkable happens. Yes. The warrior starts spouting poetry. <laughs> <laughs> but it's useful poetry because it, it informs Aideen and reminds the listener mm. exactly who she was as well as who she is. Yes, but there's even more to it because it also has an element of prophecy to it. It's also uh, foretelling all the things that will happen because of Aideen in this life. And, and the trouble she's going to cause as exactly, well. Exactly, yeah. It's it's never easy for these beautiful young women, is it? <laughs> um, yeah, I'll tell that to Fulham. Yeah, exactly. But it does have, the whole poem is kind of, there's all this past and future stuff very much mixed in together. The, the timeline, if you like, of that poem is very 
back and forth, this very wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Yeah, it sort of starts off telling her who she was, mm. but it's also this bit about, um, oh, he's because of her, the king is going to drown his two horses. Yes, and more importantly, drive the birds from Tethva. Of course. Which is um, to do with the setup for the Togolfrith and Daldarega. A completely different story. Well, it's not a completely different story. It's a sort of a... a almost a sequel they're related anyway but that's what it's hinting at it's it's sort of also bringing to the listener's mind this whole other tale which is based on this and that this Aideen is not actually an insignificant daughter of a minor king no she's a lot more than she's that, got much more to her all right as we're going to be finding out yeah well, okay so where is Inverkeithana? In Inverkeithana, where um Aideen is being reared by yeah. Aether and uh, Aether's wife. Uh, it's up in Northern Ireland. It's actually uh, where Bangor is. Okay. So, you know, we have a pretty clear um, location for that so one. So she's flown north. Well, uh, we were told, I mean, originally she's the daughter of Alil, who's a, a king in the northeast. Yeah. Um, and we're, I think uh, Aether is described as a champion of Ulster. Yeah. So, you know, it's all sort of up in that That's northeastern right. she, she, quarter. She'd been living down south yeah. <laughs> in Breda. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the wind obviously was blowing her north. Yeah, yeah. An unusual southerly gale. <laughs> <laughs> and, well... What about this other world warrior? He's got a touch of Mananan about him, at least to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it is this great description. It's it's redolent of um, if you think back to the very beginning of the story of Moitura when mm -hmm. Elitha arrives uh, over the sea to to woo and and uh, sleep with Eru, and it's quite a similar description. You know, I think uh, Elitha had more gold. He was very big, <laughs> and of course he wasn't. Um, this time, Mither isn't coming as a lover. No, he, although it's... we know and the audience know, he yes, is. yeah, and he's not identified, of course, no. in this part of the text. Um, but he does have uh, one thing that. I find really interesting is that he is described as having this five-pronged spear and in fact uh, when we come to part three next time um, that's also it's also a feature of his description so this is obviously something associated with Mither um, and what it really reminds me of is in the National Museum of Ireland there is I think actually a Neolithic five-pronged fishing spear you see this is what i'm getting at mm. you know there is this touch of from the sea yeah now of course mither lives in breleth which is completely landlocked yeah you couldn't right get further the from the sea <laughs> and yet he's got this touch of the sea this mm. touch of mananan yeah. which well i've got to be in my bonnet about yes. mither and mananan yeah. and they're both judges but this is something for another time yeah. anyway i can't prove anything but no, uh, no. but it is it interesting to note yeah yeah it's indicative yes <laughs> suggestive <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> um, anyway, just who is Aideen then? I mean, look, it's still a problem to me. The poem implies that she's now more than the daughter of an insignificant northern king. Mm. So, is she a human girl or is she a powerful other word world being well yes obviously uh, both but uh what well, i mean yes to both yeah exactly yeah yeah that um, really answers the of question course, of course <laughs> one thing that i came across that really interested me was i was having a look through the banhenicus uh which is a poem um and as you might the history of women exactly yeah, yeah. The history of women so it's a poem that kind of lists all the notable women starting with eve from right Lula, okay and you know sort of down through the kind of the the you hemorrhized sort of biblical stuff and down into the sort of uh, so this is a late piece which is trying to draw all the f the most important characters in Irish yeah, mythology into well, all the female characters all yeah. the female yeah all the female characters yeah yeah but in that uh, they list um, 
let's see, there's Nevin, there's Macha, there is Baiv, uh, there's Morrigan, and Beichwila, who we met in yeah, Moitura, yeah. and Aideen. And they're listed as the sorceresses of so the two of the day. Of course, she's included in that list, isn't exactly, she? Exactly, yeah. So I think that that is a very interesting uh, grouping altogether. And, and are you sure that this is the same Aideen? Well, the, definitely with Aideen, the thing is that, like we're, we're seeing in today's section, she gets born over and over again. Yeah, and yeah, we'll also course. find later she has daughters who are also called Aideen and who look identical to her. So, yeah, she's a sort of a bit like the Ethlus. Yes. Ethna and Ethlu, they're all really, yeah. they're one, although they're all different. Yeah, they keep on appearing over, over and, and over, over again. again. Yeah. It, this makes her a particularly interesting character. Yes, yes. And in the Banyanicus, indeed, it does talk about uh, Aideen as we're meeting her now in her second life um, and that she will have a daughter who the poem calls Essa but is known elsewhere as Aideen and you know all of those elements of if you like her her mortal life mm -hmm. and her role as an ancestress for a particular dynasty of kings uh, which is the, the lineage of Cunora Moor um, which is what the whole Derriga bit is about. Yeah, yeah. So she she really does have this very important place, both as if you like one of those mythical women um, that we spent the whole of series one looking at, but also as this um, kind of legitimizer of, of historical uh, dynasties. Yeah, so there's more to her than meets the eye. Definitely. Um, that healing of you know that that thing in the poem where it mentions that she heals the king's eye. Yeah. Uh, I just wondered, is this a memory of the healing of Mither's eye in part one? Do you think? Um, is I it a reference back to that? I think it would certainly bring that to the listener's mind. Well, the mind it wasn't of the her who did no, it. No, it wasn't. But um, and it it does say that she she healed uh, the king's eye with water from the well at Loch League. I haven't been able to find a geographical location for this Loch League. Which suggests that it might be a kind of part of Magmel, part of you know the plain mm -hmm. of honey, the land of promise, etc. Well, it also struck me that uh, the 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 purple fly, mm. the size of the man's head, with yeah. all this fragrance, all the rest of it, has superb healing powers. Exactly. Really, yeah. So this may be a story or a part of a poem mm. that we no longer have. Mm. The story of the healing of the king's eye by yeah. the purple fly. Yes. I'm only guessing. Yeah, yeah, it could well be. It certainly yeah, certainly seems to be one of her features. Another thing about the story at this point, uh, I was noting, is that we're now going through a complete change in style. Mm. You know, that it's moved from a sort of heroic mythological past. Yeah to a sort of present. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, for instance, Mither was uh, almost like a, just an ordinary man, especially, yeah. you know, a leader, a hero. Yeah. He had some powers, but but he needed Angus and the Dagda to do exactly. work for him. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly now he's become a sort of exotic other world she warrior. Yeah, yeah. And that's she with an ID rather than she with an S H E. Yes, a fairy yes. fairy warrior. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he has that sort of appearing out of the mist quality and can see into past and future and all those things. Sort of more medieval, I suppose. Yeah, this medieval magic yeah, quality. Yeah. But there is a bit more of the first story yeah, to we, tell. We sort that out. Exactly, yeah. This is sort of the the end of Fulmnach's story, so to speak. Um, that after Aideen has been sent, wafted away, as they say, on her last sort of stormy journey, um, Oingus goes back to Mither and warns him that Fulmnach 
isn't finished with them that you know he, he still needs to be careful of her she's not trustworthy no and that obviously she's she's rather angry so um <laughs> oingus sort of tracks fumlach down and tracks her back to her foster father's house which is her foster father being breschel etherlock yeah um from whom she's she she magic. stormed off to yeah storms off there every time yeah off, off to daddy yeah um and uh, that's given as oinach bovgana um which is sort of Oinuk is a fair, as we know. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when I went looking for this as a geographical location, um, Hogan had sort of assumed that it must be near the brew, you know, presumably because of this story. Yeah, but the story's not happening round there. No, uh, again, he, he does tend to make assumptions that the, the place names in this story must be in a very small geographical location, yeah. but they, they cover the whole country. Yeah. Um, and so this Bovkina, there's a slave Bovkina, which is now slave Bon, and that's uh, just west of the Shannon between kind of Lanesborough and Ruski. So it's not terribly far away at no, all. No, that isn't far from Brila. Exactly. But it's nowhere near the Bruna Boyne. No. The story's moved away from there. Well, uh, it's the sort of the last bit that concerns the brew, that Oingus has tracked her right the way across the country and across the Shannon. I suppose so, yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And so he finds her there in, in you know, not far away from... Uh, where we are now in Kentrus Common, he cuts off her head, and with it he went galumphing back to <laughs> uh, the Brunaboyna, and he sort of sticks her head. I don't know whether it's visible or not, but around the border anyway, on the brink of the brew. Ugh. Yeah, <laughs> lovely, and that's the end of Fulhamnach. <laughs> but you know, I still feel sorry for Fulhamnach. I can't help it. Yeah, yeah. It's always, you know, I feel sorry for. The, sometimes I feel sorry for the fairy godmothers. They have to put up with such a lot from these beautiful little girls yeah. who come over and take over. Yeah. You know, when they were powerful, independent women, and suddenly they're, you know, they've yeah. got this new into. No. Dear, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not a stepmother. No, thankfully. But <laughs> but I do feel sorry for Philip. Did yeah. she actually break the law even? No, I don't think that she did. Um, there are some parts of the law that sort of warn against uh, sorceresses and things like that, but it's hard to imagine how that would ever be proven. And certainly in the world of the first part of the story, she is well within her rights. She injured Aideen. It was not fatal. Um, and so, yeah, and then she left. She was within her rights as a wife to mm. do those things. So, no, I don't think that she has, really. <laughs> I'm not really on her side. No. Don't well, get me. I don't know. There's something to be said for her, all right. <laughs> Is there any significance, the fact that he brings it back, the head back to the Bruna Boyne? I mean, I was just thinking in terms of what we were talking about in previous podcasts, mm. of, particularly in terms of Nokva, yeah. uh, being a place of the place of significance in the burial of women mm, i don't think so i i feel that this is more of a sort of a trophy or just proof that she's dead just a head on a stick i think yeah i think that's kind of what it is and you can i don't know i can imagine it terribly cinematically that he he sort of drags her head back home and then yeah gets a great big pole sticks it on top and go there she's done <laughs> <laughs> but actually, there is another version of the uh, death of Fumnock, yes. isn't there? And uh, given at the close of that story, and it's a mm. bit surprising. Well, uh, it is quoted at the end of this part of the story, the end of, if you like, part one of the tale. Yeah. Um, and they do come back to it later as well. So it goes, Foolish Fumnock was Mither's wife. Sigvul, a hill with sacred trees in Breleth, a faultless arrangement, they were burned by Malanam. And I don't think it means the trees. <laughs> no, no, I think it means... Well, it's it's supposed to be an account of how Fuamnach died. So, in other words, Mither yeah. and Fuamnach yeah. are both killed by, by Malanam. Malanam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
told you Malinar had something to I do know, with the story. I know, I know. Yeah, and he does just keep on cropping up. Um, and yeah, like I say, they come back to this at the end of the story. And when they come back to it, right at the end of all three parts of this text, uh, they give more, I think there's about nine stanzas. It's only the one stanza given here. Um, but in that, it's really, rather than just the story of Fumnuch and Mither being burned by Mananon, it's actually the death of Yucadarov, who we're about to meet in our mm -hmm. part of the story. So it's actually about how Mither's grandson, Sigval, um, sort of wreaks vengeance on Yochad Arav because Yochad Arav attacked Mithers. She had pre-left because Mither had taken Aegean back. So There's this whole to and fro of vengeance. So and basically, you pinched my wife, yeah. so I've attacked you yeah. and I've killed you, so now my grandson's going to turn up. Yeah. And re yeah oh. Exactly. <laughs> At the moment, I think I'm more interested in Mananan's role as judge. Mm. I've gone back to my beat yeah. my bonnet yeah. about Mananan again. Buzz away, yeah. But interesting, he plays over and over again, he plays the role of judge. Yeah. And yeah. here he is. And Mither is also a judge. Yes, yeah. His name is... He's supposed to be the one who judges, yeah. yeah. And so is, in a way, Mananan. Mm. And um, I was just thinking about how Mananan brings things to a final end, mm. as he does in the story of um, the... the, the Love sickness of Cahullam. Yes. And yeah, Fan. Yeah. And how he takes a great cloak and waves it between the two of them so they may never meet again. Yeah. So it's not unfamiliar that mm. Mananan brings things to an end. Well, poor old Fumnuk, it seems like everybody is kind of out to, to, get, uh, to get her and to finish her because, once again, in the Banhenicus, it says that Mither is the one who slew Fumnuk with violence that uh, her sorcery did ill to both herself and that's, to Aideen. That's where it says her jealousy was cruel to herself yeah. and Aideen. Exactly. So sort of neither of them actually, you yeah. know, succeeded out of it or, or flourished from it. So yeah, that, that means we've got Oingus killing Fumnuk in the prose text. Then we've got Manon killing Fumnuk in that bit of poetry. And then in the Banyanicus, Mither killing Fumnuk. So Fumnuk's dead. Yes. <laughs> that's what you can say. <laughs> and that's dead. the end of part one. It is. That is the end of the first wooing of Aideen. Before we really get into the new part of the story, part yes. two, there's something I wanted to ask you yes. about because the wooing of Aideen, as far as I know, is created out of um, three, is it three texts? Can you explain? I <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best. Um, they're like, it is like a trilogy, like yeah. a three-part story. Um, but in terms of where we get these texts from, uh, there are two main manuscript sources. Okay. Um, so if we look at, for example, the first part of The Wing of Aideen, uh, it has a lot in common with a tale which is called Ashling Oingasa, which yeah. is the, the dream of Oingas. And that's a tale that's very firmly in the old Irish period. And that is dated... Sort of 600 to 800. It is early, so it, it? is, yeah. That's, that's the sort of the earliest part of the language that we have. Um, now, as for the main part of our story of the mm -hmm. wooing of Aideen, um, it appears in the Lavranahudra manuscript, yeah. which we date to between about 1050 and 1100. Okay. And uh, there are a lot of interpolations uh, within the text that would be consistent with that as a date okay. of the language. Um, now, the more complete version of the whole story is in a later manuscript, the Yellow Book of Lekin, but that doesn't mean the language is later. That overall, if you took the dating of the language of the text as a whole, uh, we're talking between 900 and 1200, we're talking about the Middle Irish period. So that's your overall dating for the story. So basically, we've got two main manuscripts. Yes. And uh, these include 
little bits of old Irish, mm -hmm. but it's mostly middle exactly. Middle Irish. It's mostly that middle Irish, uh, the tenth to thirteenth century. Now Irish. you mention these uh, scraps of old Irish. Mm. These, you know, our linguistic potsherds. Yes. Um, does this help to date the tale? Do any of these linguistic potsherds help to date the not the manuscripts but the tale? Yeah. Now this is um, very much confirming um, what I said previously about the story of Maitura, that what you find is that the passages of poetry are older linguistically speaking than the prose that surround them. So while most of the prose of our Tochvark Edina, the Wynne of Edine, is quite clearly Middle Irish, the poetry, including some passages of Rusk, this mm. wonderful non-syllabic poetry which I yatter on about all the time. Oh, it's really nice. To yeah. Try and work with it. So those are all, you know, pretty firmly old Irish. So, you know, the, the poems themselves do date to earlier. So once again, I feel that we have a story whereby the poems have preserved some yeah. of its original the language. What about the prophecy poem? That would count as one of them that I told today. So yeah. that, in fact, is like an older core, an older yes. seed mm. of the story. Yes. Which has then been, has grown in Middle exactly. Irish. It's been expanded. It's very exciting, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what I love about these tales. Mm. Well, let's go back to the tale. I'm yeah. just noticing once again what I said earlier on, that you've got a complete change in style mm. in the section that's coming up, yes. isn't it? Yes, yeah, in part two. Yeah. In part two. Yeah. We're really only starting part two exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> we had a little bit left over last time. Yeah. So, I mean, the characters of the first section, Mither, Makog, then they were very archaic, mm. very almost exotic. Mm. Um, their magic use has changed too. Or would, well, yeah, I mean, in that first part of the story, it was very much, if you like, within that mythological world. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's magic going on, but it's pretty power for the course, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's nothing kind of massively unexpected about it. But once we get into this section where it's almost in the present tense for the audience, you know, mm -hmm. it's a world they a, would have recognised. This is a story of now. Exactly. If we're going to date it around the um, 11th century yes. to take an average exactly yeah and uh, indeed it's the it, this is the part of the story that starts linking it up with if you like an almost historical genealogy and in this when the the figures from that first part appear when mither appears it is this kind of wondrous event you know so now these figures are kind of appearing from nowhere and using magic to actually change the course of events and change the outcome of things okay so we we know it's absolutely a post Milesian world absolutely yeah. so we're talking about stuff that we actually haven't introduced yet so maybe <laughs> we ought to get on and tell this get on with the story this wonderful magical story yeah so we start with a human king and what's more one who has achieved this wondrous high kingship of all Ireland. Well, he's high king of Ireland with in a still legendary world. Yes. But it's recognisably medieval. Yes, yes, exactly. Now this is Yochad Arav and uh, it's he's really overlord to the kings of each province of mm -hmm. Ireland and it lists the kings of the five provinces and we've got some very familiar names in here. We've got Concover MacNessa, uh, who obviously would be king of Ulster. Then we have Alil in Connacht. Um, we've got Curoy down in Munster. Mm -hmm. And then there's also Mesgega and uh, Tigernach 
Tade Venok, who those two I'm not so familiar with. I think they come into the legendary kingships. Yeah, well, so they're all there then. You mm. know, we all know Alil of Crookan and Kuroi yeah. and Kunkova. Yeah. Sort of the world of Fled Rickrin. It is, yeah. These are the same characters that we had there. And uh, in our discussion of that, we were talking about how it is this sort of pseudo-historical setting. So it's, full of, it's very epic, isn't it? Oh, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all writ large, no doubt about that. <laughs> so, um, your kid then. Now, look, I have to um, admit, <laughs> I do get a bit confused with all the yokids. There seem to be a load of them. Yeah. <laughs> Too many yokids. Yeah, well, yokids do have a tendency to crop up all over the bloody mm. place. In this story, there's only two, but they are brothers. Yeah, they seem to be more. <laughs> yeah, so we have this wondrous high king of all Ireland, uh, which never happened historically, of course. And he's Yochid Arav, so he is Yochid uh, the ploughman, the ploughing Good name for king, really. It is, yes. Yeah. And then his brother, Yochid Fethluch. Um, Unimaginative parents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Jochid Fedluch is the yoked one. So he's wearing a yoke, so he's the ox pulling the, the plough. Definitely unimaginative parents. Yeah, yeah. And, but then there's their brother, Alil Oingava. And again, we, there's Alils who are kings all over the place as well. It does yeah. get confusing. Oingava, though, is nice. It means a sort of wondrous or splendid smith. Okay. Yeah. Now that's more imaginative. Yeah. He must have been the youngest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, it does feel more Middle Irishy with its King of All Ireland, yes, etc. Yeah, exactly. And indeed, I mean the you we're talking about getting confused between the Yochids. I mean, the texts are confused between the Yochids as well. Because in this text, we have uh, Yochid Arav as mm -hmm. the king of all Ireland. And, you know, he chooses Aideen as his bride and so we on. We haven't got to that bit yet. Spoilers. No, sorry, spoilers, spoilers. But uh, in the text of the Togelbrith and Dalderga, the destruction of Dalderga's hostel. Which we might have a go at later. <laughs> yeah, if we're feeling brave. In that, it's Yochid Fethluk who comes across Aideen so to speak. <laughs> so, yeah, it is confusing. <laughs> but we end up with three brothers. Yes. The yoked, the ploughman, and the smith. Yes. You know, that reminds me of something. Mm. You remember our three gods of Ireland? Oh, yeah. MacCaircht. What yes. was the other one? Ma there's MacCaircht, son of the plough. Oh. Then we've got MacQuill, who's son of the hazel, and MacGrainer, son, son of, of the, the sun. sun. Yeah. yeah it's... This seems to be a pattern. You know, you've got... Oh, you've got the four craftsmen. I know yeah. it's not three, but these patterns again. Yeah, exactly. And it does seem to be quite archaic it does harken back to our people of craft of the Tuatha de Danann um, that the important thing are these crafts and those crafts include farming you know mm -hmm. this is so They're central. An agricultural people exactly therefore a good name for a king I was only joking yeah. earlier about unimaginative parents yeah but actually a good name for a king yeah is to it's... do with the plough exactly and the you know that that which brings prosperity yeah. to the land yeah exactly well our text said that Yochid Ara's favorite uh stronghold yeah uh, was Dun Frevan now it does say there were two Dun Frevans that one of them is somewhere near Tara but then everything is somewhere near Tara but the one that he actually really liked was uh, Dunfrewen in Tethfa. Now Tethfa is one of those land masses or territories that mm -hmm. is very much in the Midlands and um, it, it seems to me, I think this is the Dunfrewen that is connected to Breleth by the Corley Trackway mm. which is, we will come to, we'll come to that next later. time because no, no, that's no really spoilers. exciting no more spoilers. So, but uh, Hogan has identified this Dunfrewen as a, a hill which is called Frewen and it's on the western shore of Loch Oel, which is in County Westmeath. Now, if you've ever taken the train from Dublin up to lake. Sligo, yeah, just after you've gone through Mullingar, there's a massive lake and the train goes right beside it and, and it's you, gorgeous and you can see a little island. And you just 
just begin it? to think, God, I've passed Longford. I'm actually yeah. on my way to Dublin now. <laughs> yeah. So that that's Lockhall anyway. Yeah. And so, yeah. So Yohud's favourite stronghold is just on the far shore of that from where the train line is. So they're not too far from Breleth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I find it interesting, these sites that, you know, are hard to find now. Yeah, yeah. And yet you've got, as I was talking about that little piece on the blog, mm. that you've got somewhere like the Runeboyne, which of mm. course is world famous. Yeah. But you've got other sites like Breleth, which is just as mythologically significant. Exactly. And yet there's nothing there, yeah. not even as far as I know archaeologically. Mm, mm. Though I am interested in this Hill of Sacred Trees. Yeah, that that could well, you know, give us a bit of a hint well, Yochid tries to convene an Oinach at Tara. Now, this is one of the Oinachs we've described before. This is for the purposes of assessing income tax okay. for the next five years. But, and this gives us a bit of an insight into power structures, his people refuse. They say, they why should they go and pay him tax for five years if he hasn't bothered to get himself a wife? A wife? Why does he have to have a wife? Is this in the status tax? Well, I haven't come across it, but this little exchange seems to show that there is a sort of reciprocity of duties between yeah. the king and his people. So the people don't feel bound to give income tax if the king hasn't got a wife. Now, there seems to be an element whereby we're talking about continuing dynasties because, you know, some people might tell you that it was all democratic in old Ireland, but no, you did still have to have a father or a grandfather who was king before you could qualify to be in the yeah. running for kingship. So it was, you, you know, you had to qualify for election. Exactly, exactly. So there is an element where maybe it is to do with continuing dynasty, but on the other hand, I can't think of any example of a king who loses his authority because he doesn't have children. Right. You know, so I think that there may also be a real temporal role for a queen, that there are things that it is right for a queen to do. So I suppose in that case, not having a wife is seen as a kind of blemish. I would think so. It certainly undermines his authority. And I think it's, it, it, to turn that on its head, it's that to have a queen with a king is core, that that's rightness, you know. Yeah, and that's so, natural justice. Exactly. So if you have that, if you like, at the, the centre of, uh, of your society with a king and a queen, then everything else will sort of have a better chance and to be And it's interesting core. how basically this has come down to us. I, mean, I mean, it's at the core yeah. of storytelling and exactly. folktale, yeah. fairy tale. Yeah. You always have a king and a queen. Yes, and in fact, often trouble happens uh, when a king loses his queen. Yeah, yeah, no. I think it's obviously an important it's, motive. Yeah, I think it's very deeply ingrained. Well, this strikes me that Louis, losing Fulmnacht then was a great blemish to Mither. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why Melanin got rid of them both? <laughs> Possibly. So, yeah, what's next? Oh, yeah. Yochid sends envoys to every province to search for, the, you know, good fairy tales. Oh, yeah. The fairest woman in Ireland. Yes. But interestingly, he insists she has to be a virgin. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I find that odd. But, of course, they, they select Aideen. Naturally. Daughter of Ada. Yeah. But there's no problem this time, is there? No. There's... She was his match in shape and form and lineage yes. and splendour, youth and fame. Yes, and there's no status gap this time. So we don't have that awful problem with the bride price that we had the first time round. She has to be a virgin. I'm coming back to that. Yeah. Because the, the reason is, there's in all the stories we've talked about, mm. there's definitely been no emphasis on virginity. No. In fact, just the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yes, yes, quite. Uh, well, I think that the very fact that it's specified in this text does indicate to us that that's something a bit unusual. Maybe it's his own particular penchant for whatever reason. Yeah, it is odd, isn't it? Because even in texts which are clearly Middle Irish, mm. they're still not a particular, not like Wayne. No, where you've got this repression. <laughs> His particular <laughs> emphasis on yes, purity. Exactly, yeah. The, the texts of the similar age mm. in Ireland just don't have that quality. Well, no, and in fact, uh, the, the, there are even stories of the, the lives of female saints where, you know, virginity is not an issue. And there's some, I think there's some stories of Welsh saints yeah. where the miracles they perform are to protect their lovers. So yeah, that they can get married. You know, do you remember the perhaps um, oh I don't know the the that, that rather odd story of Bridget mm. who insisted that oh, Patrick yes. she she asked her to, him to marry her yeah. on the twenty ninth of February. Oh, yeah. So he'd have to give her a silk dress when he refused. <laughs> <laughs> Apocryphal, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they weren't that kind of you know very uh, the like you say in Gawain that sort of sexual repression thing so yeah it is unusual to have this stated that it should be a woman who has known no other man before him so yeah they go and find Aideen daughter of Adar the yeah. reborn Aideen and he pairs up with Yocket yeah and now uh, she's married to the High King of All Ireland not bad no she seems quite happy with that one mm-hmm now, Yochid's brother, Ala Loingova, the splendid smith, he falls for Aideen at this fair of Tara, presumably yeah. one for the purposes of income tax. Um, and it says that uh, it was his wont to gaze upon her continually, and such gazing is a token of love. <laughs> But he won't give in to it. No, and he doesn't tell anyone about it either um, because he has respect for his brother's position, obviously. Um, and, but he doesn't even tell Aideen about it. And this makes him really ill. This gives him the love sickness. And he isn't just a little bit ill, is no, he? No. He hasn't just got a cold or man flu. No, there's no man flu. He is on the point of death. This is real, people. So, uh, obviously then, a physician is called. Yeah. And the physician recognises that Alil is suffering from one of the two pains that a doctor cannot cure. He is suffering both from extreme jealousy and from love. And this is bringing him to the point of death. He doesn't even tell the doctor. No, he won't let on at all. He's basically trying to retain everybody's honour, his and his brothers and Aideen's and everyone, so he's keeping S stum. So to recap... Yeah. Alil tries not to covet his brother's wife. Yes. But desire is stronger than character. Yes. And his love sickness is deadly. Yeah. He's not acted on his desire or told Aideen no. of, of it. Yet he's on his deathbed. Yes. Very noble. Oh, it is. All terribly. And hardly his fault, as we're about to discover. Exactly. Yeah, but what happens next really seems to pile on the irony. <laughs> to create a cruel situation. Of course, because Jochard has to go off on a circuit of Ireland as part of his kingly duties. And who does he leave but Aideen in charge of his brother's sick lying? Yeah, and this means it's she who must physically care for the dying man. Yeah, and it's much more than that. It also says that she has to ensure that his grave is dug, oh, very nice. that his lamentation is composed, and that his cattle are slaughtered. Cattle are slaughtered? <laughs> <laughs> yes. What's that about? I have no idea. I mean, it's not in the law text, is it? That yeah, cattle have to be slaughtered when you're dying. No, absolutely not. In fact, they are, you know, your movable property. Yeah, they... so why can't the cattle go to his relatives? Well, that would be the normal thing, particularly they're termed biothil, which you can translate as livestock, although it has an opposite maravdil, which are, you know... Dead stock. <laughs> 
That's exactly what someone in my class called it. Livestock and dead stock. So the cattle anyway are bio though. So they are livestock. So yeah, those are the bits that are most normally divided up among the king group, yes, even it. if they don't have like direct descendants. So are we talking about a funeral feast? That's the only explanation that I can really come up with uh, yeah. for this that you know obviously if someone important dies it's got to be a massive party yeah and so yeah to provide the, the food as far as i know there's no evidence of um grave goods including dead cattle no i don't but think there's a lot of evidence of feasting absolutely and they all love a good feast the old irish well whatever i mean aideen's presence there that must really pile on the pressure well, in fact, no, because she's the cause of his illness, her presence actually improves his situation. So he starts getting better he again. He starts getting better. And it says how, I think this is a bit nice, I like that it says every day that she would go to him and she would bathe his head and carve his meat and pour water onto his hands. And now I think that, you know, we just bear that image in mind because in part three, we'll discover that one of Aideen's particular skills is in the pouring of drink. And that's more important than just... I think so. I think that's a very important yeah. Save indication. Save that for later, because yeah. I think that's interesting. It is. Doesn't this go on for 27 days? Yes, it says that she, she goes to him every day for thrice nine days, which, again, nearly a full month, nearly a full cycle of so the moon. So one minute he's dying. Yeah. A month later, he's, he's looking a bit better. He's nearly better, exactly. Now, Aideen notices getting better, doesn't she? Yeah. And she sort of asks him directly what's wrong. Mm. And now this time he gives in. Yeah. And he tells her that actually it's you. <laughs> it's your fault. I love her response though. Oh, yeah. She says, pity it's been so long until you told me. You would have been healthy long ago had you, had I known. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she immediately agrees to cure him. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and he even asks her outright, and when will I get that last thing I need in order to be fully cured? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Well, Aideen says, ah, come on, we'll we, we, you'll have it tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll sort this out tomorrow. Yeah. And she agrees to meet him, but not in the court, because no. that would be a bit weird. Yeah. But up on the hill above the court. Yes. Now, the following night comes, and uh, Alan is all eager for his cure, and he tries to stay awake, tries to stay awake, but then he mysteriously falls asleep. Um, and he doesn't wake up till the next morning. But in the meantime, Aideen has gone up onto the hill and uh, at the appointed time, she sees someone who looks exactly like Alil coming towards her. And what's more, it sounds like Alil and he's complaining about his illness and how weak he is and how terrible so he feels. So she makes him better. <laughs> and comes back down into the court. Well, the problem is that Alil wakes up at 9am in the morning Oh, no. He just slept through a really hot day. Yep. <laughs> Happened He's... to us all. Has <laughs> it? Speak for yourself. I missed AD. Yeah. But when he reports to Aideen that he overslept, she doesn't say anything about the man mm -hmm. she met, whether she's embarrassed or whether she thinks something else is going on. Mm -hmm. But she just says, um, should we try it again tonight? Yeah, she, what she says is, oh, that doesn't matter. One day follows another, which is a nice little phrase. Again, it could just be incidental or idiomatic, but I think it just reminds us of that thing that is it not in days and nights that all, all time is made. That one day is the same as another. Yeah, so if it wasn't tonight, okay, tomorrow night, tonight tomorrow. will do. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, she obviously enjoyed the first night. Mm -hmm. She's happy to try it again. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, the next night is no better. 
exactly the same thing happens. Even though Alil has sat up in front of a roaring fire and he's got a bowl of cold water so that he can splash it into his eyes <laughs> to keep him awake. But lo and behold, when the time comes round, he's dropped off to sleep again. And Aiding goes up to the And Aiding goes and meets this uh, person. On the third night, though, when it's happened again, Aideen is sort of, she's had enough of this. She's and really she, suspicious. Yeah, she confronts this Alla lookalike. And what she says to him is, you know, that the whole reason that she's made this assignation, this tryst, is in order to save the life of one who would be king who is fit to be king. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, I think she's saying, look, you know, I haven't just come up here for for a bit of fun. You know, there's actually something really important that I'm trying to achieve. You know, this may be great fun, but yeah. it's really got a more important thing I should be doing. Exactly. So she asks him his name and he reveals that he is, in fact, Mither. And he goes on to make his case. Uh, he tells her about this massive bride price that he paid for her that first time round. And she was his wife. Exactly, with all that clearing of land and water and gold and silver and all the rest of it. But he also then admits that it was he who actually caused the great love in Alil for Aideen. Oh. So he's made him ill. And he also admits that he took away the ability to fulfil his desire. So... <laughs> It's, <laughs> it's makes him cool. horny and then makes him impotent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's a bit disingenuous. It is rather. <laughs> but he has, I'm not surprised, he's mm. gained Aideen's attention. Yeah. She's totally hooked on the story. Mm. And now she wants to know if, if she was this other Aideen, mm. then how on earth did they get separated? Yeah. And at this point she gets the whole story of Fulnock. Yeah. Um, now, she's flattered, mm. but she's not going to let go of being Queen of Ireland in a hurry. No. Um, I like that way she says, No, I will not barter the King of Ireland for a man whose kindred and race I know not. <laughs> Very sensible. So he's still got a bit of proving to do. Yes. <laughs> but I like the way that, although he's obviously now at the point of winning her over, mm. Uh, because when Mither asked her if she would come with him, mm. you know, if Yokid said she could, if yeah. Yokid bids her. So if your husband lets you. <laughs> so if she's got her husband permission, would, would in that case, would yeah. she come with him? And she goes, I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sensible girl. So she's sort of gone, she's, she's buttering her bread both sides. Oh, yeah. And so Aideen returns home to the court in the morning. And what should she find? But Alil is all better and he's delighted and not in love with her anymore exactly he's cured of the love he's cured of the illness and the jealousy and uh, he's particularly happy that no one has had to go behind anyone else's back nobody has had to besmirch their honor in order for this <laughs> cure to take place and indeed when Jokic himself comes back from his circuit he finds that his brother is well and he's delighted about that and he heaps praise upon Aideen for having looked after him <laughs> so well does he know exactly <laughs> But that is essentially, that is the end of part two of the story. So if we go over that section, Aideen then is prepared to risk her honour mm. for her brother-in-law. Yeah. And I mean, that's no easy thing. You know, she's, she's quite ready to do it to save a life. You know, it's not uh, this, it's not an affair like we had at the beginning between Daitha and uh, Bowen. Yeah. You know, this, this is a different situation and it's naughty. It's very naughty. And then, of course, the other thing I was noticing is what I was saying earlier. Mither is very clearly now, uh, to excuse the word, fairy lord. Yeah. Actually, it seems more like a Tolkien elf yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that stature and mm. uh, um, 
Oh, confidence. Yes. Another thing I've noticed is that the way that now he's using magic, but he's using magic to suit his own ends. Yeah, he and is. this is a change. It is, rather. You know, I mean, it's it's not quite what the Dagda does with uh, trying to get the brew for Oingus. It's got, it does seem That's a bit... verbal trickery. Exactly. Legal trickery. Yeah, this is like quite different. Yeah. This is of a different order. This has to do with, you know, causing a human to be ill and insane and on their deathbed just so that he can get to meet with Aideen. It's mad medieval magic. It is a bit, yeah, yeah. There's other examples of love sicknesses, aren't there? There is. It's not the only uh, example. Uh, we mentioned before about the Shergligo Cun which is the, the love sickness of Cúchulain. And that's where he's, again, put into this great illness because of love for Fand and Liban. Or, mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, at one point, the two fairy women are actually beating him with sticks. <laughs> that's how bad it is. And that's the one which ends, as you said, with Mananon waving his cloak between them so that they would sort of get each other so you know the the this love sickness it is quite a common thread we also had that one with oingus although that's not so much the sort of the fairy world and human world you know that's in a slightly different register but it is a motif that appears definitely more than once yeah yeah it's interesting that she will go with him as it put it if her husband bids her yeah i really like this <laughs> it might seem a bit odd but uh as we were discussing before with ideas of marriage that you could have more than one wife but also um if both parties in a marriage agree that it's not working or that you know they they want to be with other people you can have an amicable divorce separation so it was a possibility exactly yeah yeah um actually she was married to me before mm. you wanted a virgin mm. okay so it was in another incarnation yeah, but yeah. who cares yeah details details <laughs> And she seems to accept this strange background surprisingly readily. Yeah, well, I suppose if, you know, if a doppelganger of someone that you're trying to cure appears and, you know, starts telling you all this stuff... It's kind of romantic, isn't it? It is. And bit, it really yeah. beats the, oh, I was stolen away by gypsies yeah, as a baby, yeah, yeah. into a cocktail, doesn't it? Yeah, but she doesn't stay romantic. I mean, after all, she wants to make sure that this is not going to damage her status. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing she's concerned <laughs> yeah. about. Um, you know, it's, it's mother's status. She wants to clarify before yeah. she'll go with him. Yeah. yeah. But before, before we finish, isn't there another tale that has a relationship to this part of the story of the wooing of Aedy? Yes. And now I have touched on this. We have touched on this earlier. This is the Togol Vridden Dalderga, the destruction of Dalderga's hostel. A very complex and oh, complicated story. If you think this one's bad, that one's a lot worse. But they are very intimately related texts because the Togolvridendal Derega begins with Yochid meeting Aedine. Now, it's the other Yochid in that tale. It's Yochid Fethluk. It's the yoked one. So all one. three brothers have been I know, yeah, they've that. all been there. But um, in the Bridendal Derega, um, it's Yochid Fethluk is out, I think he's out hunting, and then sees this wonderful, beautiful woman and uh, there's a I, what I think is a really gorgeous description of how she's there. She's bathing with a silver bowl which has these gold birds in it and um, it gives a wonderful description of every single part of her body pretty much. You know, it's it's very sensual. Um, and she he asks her, you know, well, you're pretty gorgeous. Can we have an hour of lovemaking? Um, very much like Elisa and Nehru. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, that's the whole reason I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> Glad you asked. Exactly. Uh, she introduced herself as Aideen, the daughter of Aether. 
So this is the sort of Aideen Mark II that we've yeah. been talking about in our in this episode. Uh, so she says she's daughter of Aether, but she says that she was born in the She Mount. So she's identified herself as another world character in Brythendal Derega. Because if you like, it's at one remove when it's in the context of the story of Dalderiga. And, uh, you know, she gets together with Jochid Fethluk and uh, they have a daughter who is also Aideen and it all goes the on from and there. The plough and the yoked now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's um, it's very much like in the beginning of Dalderiga because it's, if you like, closer to the whole story of Cunra Moore and yeah, the establishing yeah. of that line of kingship. So... That it, this is like the sort of the rave scale. This She's become the, his ancestress exactly. of a very important later king. Exactly, and so she had has to appear at the beginning of that but story. But there are interesting features here mm. because when I asked you right at the beginning, mm. is she a mortal girl, mm. or you know the daughter of a somewhat insignificant northern king, mm. or is she a powerful other world being? Yeah. Here in this story, she is a powerful other world being. Absolutely. And uh, in a way, it mirrors the story of her meeting with, uh, as a mortal girl, yeah. meet, it mirrors her meeting with the, the other immortal world. Miver exactly. on the hill. Yeah, except it's reversed that time. And this strikes me as being significant mm. because, you know, we were talking about the story being um, set in, the first part being set in an archaic yeah. present. Yeah. And now it's set in a, shall we say, familiar, if legendary. Yeah present yeah so obviously she belongs now to this in her first incarnation mm. into the archaic world yeah therefore she must be magical exactly yeah yeah so it's quite a, a it's quite a paradox it is yeah and she she is just always being reborn or giving birth to a daughter who is the image of her and has the same name you know this this is her quality that if you're mortal she's otherworld and if you're otherworld she's mortal yeah it's it, 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 this motive the aiding motive mm. seems to have struck a real chord mm. with storytellers i think so yeah so let's just clarify what we've got in part one and part two in the yeah. story part one the fly on the wall yes and part two the the reborn identity yeah that, that... <laughs> thank you very much that, that was isolde's title my fault <laughs> But I suppose part one is very mythological, mm. archaic, remote. Yeah. And part two is legendary, mm. pseudo-history, yeah. giving a background for kingship exactly. and um, lineage, future lineage, yeah. as you mentioned Connor. Yeah, with Connor Moore, yeah. So they are the two very contrasting worlds. And we did meet these before, particularly when we were looking at Nera. We had a very kind of distinct line between the human world of Nera and Maeve and Alil in that kind yeah. of recognisably historical medieval court, and then the the difference of going into the fairy world of the other world. And um, I think that that's very clearly reflected in these parts one and two. And the next part that we look at, those worlds come into conflict. Exactly the same way as they did in Nera too. Exactly, yeah. So you then get the whole theme of, you know, the human encampment, the Dune of Dune Frevan, uh, being in battle with the uh, the fairy she of Brileth. And that's very much what the third part is about, is about the, the, the clashing of the two worlds that we've now met. And I suppose that's why we're stopping the story here. Yeah, it's the right place to stop. Yeah. yeah. So we've witnessed the second wooing of Aideen, mm. and she is thoroughly wooed. <laughs> yes. But there's still to come is the paying of a second bride price. Yes. And this leads to the battles, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. That's That sets it all up for the battles. And what's more, we even have one of those very, very rare things, which is an archaeological evidence, if you like, 
for a mythological tale. This is just, you don't get this anywhere else. Yeah, uh, because this bride price paying is going to be tough. <laughs> it is, rather. And, and this time, uh, he won't have the help of Wangus and the Dagd. Miller won't. Yeah, but he's got all the magic powers himself now. Exactly. Well, that should be fun. And mm. I know we're particularly looking forward to the last section, yes. the third section. And it contains, as you said, some elements that are particularly, uh, we found very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So hope you enjoy when them too. archaeology fits, seems to catch up with mythology. Yeah. Great. Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>